Hello, friend. Thanks for tuning in. Today's podcast has been on my mind for weeks, if not months. This particular phrase in the Bible has confused me many, many times. And so um, it's with a great deal of trepidation and, oh gosh, um, reverent fear of the Lord that I am tackling this subject. What the heck does it mean? Those who have will be given more, and those who do not have, even what they have will be taken away from them. What What is Jesus saying here? Because every single time this is in um, the Gospels, it's the words of Jesus. So that that is heavy. Jesus was the only ever perfect human who ever lived because he was fully man and fully God. So if Jesus is the epitome of love and kindness, why is he saying something that is so harsh? Um, yeah, so I did some reconnaissance and this phrase is mentioned five times in the Gospels that I could find. Um, it is mentioned in the parable of the sower, which is told three times, Matthew 13, Mark 4, and Luke 8. And it's also shared in Matthew 25, in the parable of the talents, and Luke 19 for the parable of the talents. So I have picked a couple of, it was very hard, I've picked um, a couple of passages to share each of those parables with you. And then we're also going to read Isaiah 6, because the parable of the sower references Isaiah 6. And then we're going to talk about, in all of that context, what this tiny little phrase actually means. So, now that we've got the outline verbalized for you, let's dig in. Jesus, please help. Amen. Luke 19, verse 11. New King James Version. Now as they heard these things, he spoke another parable. Because he was near Jerusalem, and because they thought the kingdom of God would appear immediately. Therefore he said, A certain nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom, and to return. So he called ten of his servants, delivered to them ten minas, or talents, and said to them, Do business till I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him, saying, We will not have this man reign over us. And so it was that that when he returned, having received the kingdom, he commanded these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him, that he might know how much every man had gained by trading. Then came the first, saying, Master, your mina has earned ten minas. And he said to him, Well done, good servant, because you were faithful In a very little, have authority over ten cities. And the second came, saying, Master, your mina has earned five minas. Likewise, he said to him, You also be over five cities. Then another came, saying, Master, here is your mina, which I have kept put away in a handkerchief. For I feared you, because you are an austere man. You collect what you did not deposit, and reap what you did not sow. And And he said to him, Out of your own mouth I will judge you, you wicked servant. You knew that I was an austere man, collecting what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank, that at my coming I might have collected it with interest? And he said to those who stood by, Take the mina from him and give it to him who has ten minas. But they said to him, Master, he he has ten minas. For I say to you that to everyone who has will be given, and from him who does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. But bring here these en- those enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them and slay them before me. That's heavy. The, the parable of the talents in Matthew 25 is a little bit softer, um, what we have to assume that Jesus told this story multiple times and tweaked his versions because there's this version in Luke and there's another version in Matthew where he gives five talents 
and three talents or two talents and then one talent. Um, Matthew 25, that telling is in the context of the end times. And so at the end of that telling, there is the version, the, is, there is the verse, throw them out into the darkness where they'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Um, and it is immediately following the parable of the ten virgins where the same principles held true. And um, Jesus is, in all of these parables, both the sower and the talents, Jesus is trying to explain the principles of the kingdom of God. <laughs> because we, in some sense, we understand the principles of the kingdom of men here on earth. Um, but uh, God's kingdom is hard for us. I'm, I'll be the first one to admit that. So why, why is Jesus so mean in this parable? Why is he so mean? He gave his servant, his employee, a responsibility. And we, when he came back, that servant employee shirked his work. He was lazy. Now, I believe that God chooses everyone who's going to be called into the kingdom of heaven. And I do not believe that we can lose our salvation. However, in the book of James, he emphasizes, I demonstrate my faith by my actions, through my work. You know, what we believe is reflected in our behavior. And so Jesus is calling him out on his laziness and his faithlessness. And he's also rewarding the industry of those who obeyed him, who were trustworthy. It says in scripture that those who will be faithful with little will be trusted with much and will be faithful with much. And it also says in scripture that those to much to whom much is given, much will be required. And I'm sharing those verses off the top of my head, so I don't immediately remember the the references, but, you know, that's why we have concordances to go and look these things up. So now that I have read the parable of the sower, excuse me, the parable of the minas slash talents in Luke 19, I'm going to jump over to Mark 4 and read the parable of the sower. Now, Mark is one of the books of the Bible that really just blazes through and hits the highlights. So this is a, I think, in my opinion, this is the briefest telling of this um, parable. Mark 4, verse 1. And again he began to teach by the sea. And a great multitude was gathered to him, so that he got into a boat and sat in it on the sea. And the whole multitude was on the land facing the sea. Then he taught them many things by parables. And he said to them in his teaching, Listen, behold, a sower went out to sow. And it, ha- and it happened as he sowed that some seed fell by the wayside, and the birds of the air came and devoured it. Some fell on stony ground where it did not have much earth. And immediately it sprang up, but because it sprang up because it had no depth of earth, but, the, but when the sun was up, it was scorched. And because it had no root, it withered away. And some seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no crop. But other seed fell on good ground, and yielded a crop that sprang up, increased, and produced, some thirtyfold, some sixty, and some a hundred. And he said to them, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. But when he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parable. And he said to them, To you it has been given to know the mystery of the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. But to those who are outside, all things come in parables. So that, quote, Seeing they may see and not perceive, and hearing they may hear and not understand, lest they should turn and their sins be forgiven them. End quote from Isaiah 6. 
And Jesus said to them, Do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? The sower sows the word, and these are the ones by the wayside, where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan comes immediately and takes away the word that was sown in their hearts. These likewise are the ones sown on stony ground, who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with gladness, and they have no root in themselves, and so endure only for a time. Afterward, when tribulation or persecution arises for the word's sake, immediately they stumble. Now these are the ones sown among thorns. They are the ones who hear the world, who hear the word, and the cares of this world, the deceitfulness of riches, and the desires for other things entering in choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. But these are the ones sown on good ground. Those who hear the word, accept it, and bear fruit some thirtyfold, some sixty, and some a hundred. I'm going to keep reading a few more sections of this chapter, and then we're going to talk about what it means. Matthew 4, verse 21. Mark 4, verse 21. Goodness. Also he said to them, Is a lamp brought to be put under a basket or under a bed? Is it not to be set on a lampstand? For there is nothing hidden which will not be revealed, nor has anything been kept secret, but that it should not but that it should come to light. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. Then he said to them, Take heed what you hear. With the same measure you use, it will be measured to you. And to you who hear, more will be given. For whoever has, to him more will be given, but whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. And he said, The kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground, and should sleep by night and rise by day, and the seed should sprout and grow. He himself does not know how, for the earth yields crops by itself, first the blade, then the head, after that the full grain in the head. But when the grain ripens, immediately he puts in the sickle, because the harvest has come. Then he said, To what shall we liken the kingdom of God, or with what parable shall we picture it? It is like a mustard seed, which, when it is sown on the ground, is smaller than all the seeds on earth. But when it is sown, it grows up and becomes greater than all herbs, and shoots out large branches, so that the birds of the air may nest under its shade. And with such parables he spoke the word to them, as they were able to hear it. But without a parable he did not speak to them. And when they were alone, he explained all things to his disciples. It is very clear to me from this reading that, um, and Isaiah 6 will back this up, Jesus is sharing the truth with those who want to listen. He's using stories because stories stick on our head better. I don't know about you, but I, there were books I read when I was 16 that I still remember to this day. And it, it, in that particular case, it wasn't even that that was a good story or anything. Or Well, that one was a good story. But stories stick with us longer than history books. <laughs> than history textbooks. Do you know what I mean? Um... You know, I don't remember when Henry VIII died. I do remember he had six wives, though, because I made a, a game in my head for divorced, killed, died, divorced, killed, he died. That's the only reason I remember Henry VIII's six wives. Because I turned it into a story. It already was a story. Good grief, that man. That was a sick man. But anyways... <sighs> Jesus uses stories because he wants his truth to stick. <sighs> Most of the stories in the Bible are in the Old Testament and also the Gospels. When we get to the epistles, we get to very practical teaching and explanation of, of doctrine. And it's it's 
the epistles read more like sermons than storytelling. However, the epistles often reference quotes from the Gospels and quotes from the Old Testament. So in that case, they are referencing stories that were already well known to the audience. Depending on the audience, especially if they were Jewish, the book of Hebrews is a strong example there. Um, And so that's why it's very important that we read the entire Bible and we, we... we read a single verse in the context of the chapter, and we read that chapter in the context of that book, and we read that book in the context of the whole of Scripture. I've only read the entire Bible once, but I want to do it again, because honestly, I did not understand much about Isaiah the first time through, and I know there's a lot more there to take in. The The minor prophets and the major prophets get very confusing at times, but if there was one theme I took out of that, it was that God's justice will be served. And if that, to to tie it back in what we read in Luke 19, those who don't want to be ruled by Christ won't be ruled by him. You know, universalism is a lie. Not everyone is going to go to heaven. Jesus wants everyone to choose him, but he's not going to force them to submit to him. At the end of days, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Some will do that with joy and some will do that with trembling, knowing they have put him off their entire lives and now there is nothing left for them but judgment. That is a heavy, heavy thing. There's a few things I want to emphasize from these other three stories in Mark 4, this context, before I go to Isaiah 6. With the light under the basket, the nature of the light is that it be displayed. We screw light bulbs into the center of the room, the highest points on the wall, so that we have clear visibility. I installed switch nightlights in my kitchen, and it is to to the to the confusion of my husband, because it's not quite his thing, can we have more nightlights in the kitchen? At one point, I had five nightlights in the kitchen. That, that, granted, that was a little bit overkill. So I have three switch nightlights in the kitchen, and they provide so much warmth and light and visibility. The nature of light is to be displayed. The nature of truth is equally to be displayed. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. Verse 24 from Mark 4 is very interesting to me. Take heed what you hear. With the same measure you use, it will be measured to you. What does that sound like? That sounds like the same quote as the Sermon on the Mount. Now, I'm not going to follow that rabbit trail, but... I would challenge you to go read Mark 4 and go read Matthew's Sermon on the Mount and compare those chapters with each other because the fact that three gospel writers shared the parable of the sowers means it's pretty important. We should be paying attention. And two gospel writers chose to share the parable of the talents, also pretty important. I feel like John only came in there and said, hey, I need to clarify some of the things and some of the details that happened right before Jesus' death. So that's why John wrote his book, because it's like, one more thing to add here. Y'all have covered plenty, but one more thing to add, and oh yeah, there's so much about Jesus that it can't even be written in books. (laughs) Do you ever have one of those days where so many amazing things happen that it would take you four hours to journal all of it, and even then you wouldn't capture the depth and the meaning and the emotion of that day? I think that's how Jesus' days were every day in ministry. So three years of days like that, where you had divine appointments back to back to back to back, mm, there's no way you can write all that down. So the gospel writers did the very best they could with the parchment and the inkwells and the quills that they had. And here we are. Also, I would like to emphasize that 
the variations between each of these stories is natural and it strengthens the validity of the Gospels. Here's why. If you and I were to see a robbery, I would probably observe, oh my gosh, that guy was wearing a purple shirt. I'm, I'm a visual person. I'm very, very attuned to color. So I would notice the color of the shirt and the color of the shoes. And were they Vans or were they Nikes? You, on the other hand, might notice the, the height and the weight. Because maybe you're a more logical person. And you take in those details. I don't know. But, like, I can't tell the difference between someone who's 5'4 and 5'6". That's just not how I'm wired. I I can't guesstimate how much a person weighs. That's not something, that's not a skill that I have. But the clothing, the whatever, were they wearing a belt? Were they not? Like, that sort of thing sticks with me. What kind of haircut did they have? That's sort of thing I remember. So different people remember different things based on our personalities. That is good. That is important. That is why we need different personalities in the body of Christ. That is why we need different personalities within our families. If you have a sibling who drives you up the wall, it's probably because God has made them different from you in a way that you need to be exposed to consistently. And he chose to plant that into your biological womb mate. Not that you were womb mates at the same time, but you, you get what I'm saying. Or, you know, half sister, step brother, that sort of thing. To wrap up my summary on Mark 4, he then has the parable of the growing seed. And while the parable of the talents emphasizes our responsibility in action and behavior, this segment, in my mind, you know, it emphasizes how we don't know how God does his work. The kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground and should sleep by night and rise by day and the seed should sprout and grow. He himself does not know how. There's so much about faith and obedience that I don't know who's going to listen to this podcast. I don't know how this is going to help you. I I don't know what year you're going to listen to it. It's currently July 27th, 2018. You might be listening to this in 2023. There's nothing wrong with that. That that's that's totally fine. You know, God had it, you know, time planted somewhere in the right place and time for you. He he guides the footsteps of righteous man, and I truly believe he guides the click steps of his righteous women. Equally so. Mark four, verse thirty is something I really cling to. To what shall we liken the kingdom of God, or with what parable shall we picture it? It is like a mustard seed. When it is sown on the ground, it is smaller than all the seeds on earth. But when it is sown, it grows up and becomes greater than all herbs, and shoots out large branches so that the birds of the air may nest under its shade. God only needs a little bit of faith. A mustard seed, I don't know if you've ever seen it, it's about the size of a pinhead. It If you were to glue them onto your pinky fingernail, you could fit probably 15 on there. That's how tiny that is. But if you have a little bit of faith, God can double it. And then he can double it again. And he can double it again. And this mustard tree that he's talking about, that represents the exponential growth of our faith. If, if you barely have faith, except to know that you want to trust God, but you're afraid to, and believe you me, I've been there for many years of my life because I, I was afraid to read the Bible. There was many nights or days when I would just hug the Bible next to me and pray that God would give me courage to read it and absorb it and live by him. And I, I know he's honored those prayers because... I, I finally finished reading the entire Bible. So, if, you, if your faith is barely hanging on by a thread, and believe you me, I have walked those seasons. I have walked 
years of those seasons. Many lonely nights, you know, before I knew I had mental health issues, when I just thought I felt sad on a regular basis, I had many, many sad, lonely nights. (sighs) Yeah. So, what is this section from Isaiah that every single parable of the sower keeps referencing? It is time to go there. Isaiah 6, verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on the throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above it stood seraphim, each one had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the posts of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out. And the house was filled with smoke. And so I said, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a live coal, which he had taken with the tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away, and your sin purged. Also I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I, send me. And he said, Go and tell this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull, and their ears heavy, and shut their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and return, and be healed. Then I said, Lord, how long? And he answered, Until the cities are laid waste and without inhabitant, the houses are without a man, the land is utterly desolate. The Lord has removed men far away, and the forsaken places are in the midst of the land, are many in the midst of the land, but yet a tenth will be in it, and will return and be for consuming, as a terebinth tree or as an oak, whose stump remains when it is cut down, so the holy seed shall be its stump. This is one of the most iconic passages in the book of Isaiah. I'd want to emphasize a few things going from the beginning of the passage through the end, and then we'll keep on analyzing it. So... These seraphim flying next to God, he is so holy that they are covering their face and they're covering their feet. Then they are saying to each other, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. R.C. Sproul made the point that holiness is the one attribute of God that is emphasized three times. Consistently, it's emphasized three times. So if there's one thing God wants us to know about who he is, it is that he is holy. Now let's take a second and think about what that means. I spent this morning sitting in bed thinking about my sin. It was way awkward. The process of sanctification is like waxing or pulling teeth or 
it's never comfortable. It's never easy. It is always, always painful. It never gets easier. It just gets deeper. And you just realize even more how wretched a human being you are in need of the extensive holy grace of God. God doesn't have that. He literally never sins. Nobody has dirt on God. At the end of time, when we all kneel before him and he reveals himself to us fully, there will be no question. You are God. You made the universe. You made the molecules. You knit me inside of my mother's womb. You gifted me with this free will to choose you or to not choose you, to choose to love you or to choose to hate you. There will be no question in our minds about God's character. That he is holy and he is just. And if you think we get angry about the sin in this world and the wicked, evil things that happen here. You should hear how God gets ticked off. I think I might have referenced in this podcast before, but there is a verse in Revelation where God is like about to smite the wicked for their judgment and the sanctuary of the temple in heaven fills with smoke and nobody can go in there because God is so pissed. Justifiably so. Excuse me for using fresh language, but I like to emphasize how strongly God gets worked up about these things, and his phrasing is a lot more holy than mine, so I'm just doing this for dramatic effect over here, okay? But God gets mad. If there's one thing I picked up from the Minor Prophets, is that God's justice, God's justice is slow, but it is thorough. And, yeah. Thank goodness. Thank goodness. Because, ugh, we need justice. I think that's why we love superheroes so much, is because our hearts long for justice. We yearn for that. That's why we love FBI shows and CIA, all these law and order shows. We want, we want justice to be served. We want the bad guys to get their due. Unfortunately, all of us are bad guys. That's, that's the bad news. We are all worthy of judgment and wrath. The good news is that God lets sorry people into heaven. That's the only type of people he lets into heaven. He lets in adulterers and murderers and fornicators and liars and perjurers and idolaters. That's all of us. And coveters, oh my gosh. He, he lets all of us into heaven. He, he, there will be people in heaven who argued about carpet color in their church renovation. But by the time they get there, they will be sorry and they'll repent and they will look at each other come, come meeting day on the other side in their heavenly bodies. And there will be only grace between each other. Because God's goodness and grace for their own sin overwhelms them to give grace and forgiveness to others. Here on earth, God's grace is, God's goodness is hidden from us. It is. I mean, yes, the sky and the trees and nature declare his glory and God's love is made manifest between how we treat each other. But in many ways, God's full goodness is hidden from us. And so we have to forgive other people in faith that God's goodness and grace for us is is way bigger than anything we would ever have to forgive anyone else for. And that's a heavy statement if you think about all the things that are that people do to each other throughout the course of time, the, the everything from the sexual abuse to the mental abuse, and the church to spiritual abuse, and oh boy, let me not get on my soapbox, but 
I am tempted to get on my soapbox. So back to Isaiah 6, God is holy. And then here Isaiah realizes, woe is me for I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips. Isaiah is a righteous dude. Isaiah, this is, okay, the fact that God is giving him this vision means that God considers him to be righteous and trustworthy with this kind of knowledge. That is a serious, that is a, that is a stronger recommendation as you can get from the living God. So let's just start with that number one. So according to God's standards, Isaiah is better than most. But here in the holiness of God, he is convicted. I'm a man of unclean lips and I live in the midst of a people of unclean lips. His concern at the very first thing is like my mouth. My mouth sins against the Lord. And I I would like to say for myself, when I had my sanctification chat this morning, I was like, my brain is sinning against the Lord, and now my mouth is the exposer of that. God have mercy on me. But an amazing thing happens. The seraphim touched his mouth with a live coal and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away and your sin is purged. There are some... There were some sins in the Old Testament that did not have sacrifices to atone for. The good news is that Jesus was the sacrifice for those sins. And I believe, I I could be wrong here because I've got my study Bible in front of me, but I'm not seeing any hints. I believe that the word iniquity there is for one of those sins that didn't have sacrifices for it. Uh, Iniquity or transgression. This is why Greek and Hebrew is important. And we need more of it. And this is why pastors go to seminary. It's, it's important because you need to know the original meaning of what it is you're, you're reading. And I, I don't in this instance. I just know that this is a thing. And so I want to reference it. Because as I think it's interesting, he says your iniquity is taken away and your sin is purged. I know for a fact that sin means to miss the mark. It means I tried to hit this dot on the wall with my little dart, and I did not hit it. So it, it's a mistake. It's not willful. It's, it's an accident. So now that Isaiah has gone through this process of being exposed to the holiness of God, realizing the depth of his sin, and then having his sin forgiven, the Lord says, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Which is a rhetorical question. Jesus is very good at rhetorical questions. Also, Jesus is good at sarcasm. That's its own podcast. We're not going there. But Jesus, mm, if, if you think that human beings like to be witty with their language, Almighty God, equally so. Just putting that out there. He's not boring. And he's very much on the record for not doing things the same way twice. When they left Exodus, they wanted, he wanted them to step into the, the, the Red Sea. When they entered the Promised Land, no, 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 no. I'm getting this mixed up. And yes, I'm tangenting, and yes, I know I'm tangenting, but I'm going to get back on track. Hang with me. When Moses initiated the crossing of the Red Sea, he touched it with his staff. When Joshua initiated the crossing of the flooded Jordan River... God asked them to step into it. The first time was a smaller step of faith. It was a tap of faith. And the second time was a literal step of faith because they didn't know how deep that water was. And if it could be two feet, it could be six feet, and it could have swept them away. So crossing the, the Jordan River 
into the promised land was just as epic as the Red Sea. And it does not get enough credence in the Bible. Also, Moses struck the rock the first time, and then the second time he was told to speak to it. So Jesus does not like to do the same thing twice. God does not like to do the same thing twice. He doesn't like to make copycat people of each other. He likes every single one of them different. That, that's what I know. So Isaiah has gone through this process of exposure, repentance, forgiveness, and now calling. And he says, here am I, send me. And God says to him, go and tell these people, keep on hearing, but don't understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy. Let's go back to Exodus for a second. Do you remember when it says that Pharaoh hardened his heart against Moses? Initially, it says Pharaoh hardened his heart. Pharaoh hardened his heart. Towards the end, it says God hardened his heart. It is a very concerning thing that if we harden our heart against the Holy Spirit, and from what I understand, ultimately, that's the only unforgivable sin. Everything else can be forgiven, but if you choose to ignore that wooing voice of the Holy Spirit on your heart, you know, both in your conscience or maybe in occasional specific, if you've ever had specific whisperings from the Holy Spirit that you thought, wait, was that God? And then later on you realized, oh, I should have done that thing because it would have worked out way better than what I did, but I didn't listen to that still small voice. And that is a reference to, um, (laughs) Moses and Elijah both went to Mount Sinai and they both wanted to experience God. And at this particular moment, I'm forgetting which one was which, but God didn't reveal himself the same way twice to either of them too. But one of those passages is the source of this still small voice. And the, the Hebrew for it is the sound of silence. Well, there is no sound of silence, so it's poetic metaphor for when when you hear a voice inside your head that it's not the enemy, and it's not your flesh, and it's it is God. That's what that means. That's what that means. So here in Isaiah six. God is saying to Isaiah, go and preach these people that their hearts should be hardened. Oh, that that just tears me up. Lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and return and be healed. God wants us to go to him for healing. He wants us to trust him. And The whole reason he gave us free will was that we could demonstrate if we, we could love him from our own initiative. Like that just baffles my mind that the God of the universe who creates such intricately beautiful things as physics and light waves and planets and to him, molecules and, and planets are the same size. He just... It's all on the same iPad display screen to him. He just pinches it a little bit and makes it, you know, he he pinches it out to see the molecules and he zooms out to see the planets. It's all the same function to him. Oh, I love him so much. Then Isaiah said to God, Lord, how long? This is the question that every believer has, has said, Lord, how long? In Ezekiel, there's a passage where he says, go through the city and mark the foreheads of those who groan because of the injustice. So if you are groaning because of wicked injustice, he hears you. And Isaiah says to him, Lord, how long? And he answered, until the cities are laid waste and without inhabitant. The houses are without a man. The land is utterly desolate. 
The Lord has removed men far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. But yet a tenth will be in it, and will return and be for consuming. As a terebinth tree or as an oak, whose stump remains when it is cut down, so the holy seed shall be its stump. God has very specific reasons for wiping out people groups. Very specific reasons. If you read the book of Judges, the beginning of Judges, we... My Bible study at church just went through this study with Jen Wilkin, who did an amazing job, and my husband listened to her podcast. Also an amazing job. Go, if you are in the Overcast app, which is my favorite podcast app, look up Flower Mound, Jen Wilkin, and it should pop up. You should see her lovely face and cute little bob of hair, and there's Hebrews and Judges and Joshua and Exodus and Genesis and more books besides that. And she has other teachings on the website now because they're not through that podcast feed anymore. But anyways, her stuff is really good. Very, very thankful for that. And she goes through chapter by chapter like a methodical Bible teacher really ought to. Me, I'm a topical person, but I've got Romans coming up. So that's that's the big project. If you want to pray for me, I'm going to read the entire book of Romans on the internet. So Pray for me. Thank you very much. Okay. Um, Jesus. Okay. Jesus. Jesus, help us all. God told the Israelites to wipe out the Canaanites. Why do you think he did that? Why do you think he told them to do that? The book of Judges is our example. Because... He says, if you don't wipe them out, their behavior is going to osmosis onto you. And you're going to adopt their gods. You're going to adopt their evil practices. And the book of Judges is a hot friggin' mess. We've got covetousness. We have adultery. We have murder. We have... Uh, we've got... The only reason Jephthah could have been possibly comfortable with sacrificing his only daughter is because he had been living among Canaanites where that was the norm. If if everybody does it, it feels normal. That's the only reason I can justify that he sat on that and thought about it for two months and still went through with it. It was culturally acceptable. Oh, the very first chapter of Judges, they cut off a, a dude's thumbs and toes Big toes and thumbs. Yes, it's gross, I know. And he says, oh, this is justice to me because I did that to 70 kings who ate at my table. Okay, number one, that dude is a big fat bully. Because if you cut off someone's toes and thumbs, you handicap that person. And if they were eating the crumbs from his table, that means he's throwing them scraps and watching them fight over it with their fingernails. That, that is bullying. That is not acceptable. That is not acceptable to God. It's not acceptable in any reasonable society. And yet, the Israelites decided to cut off that king's thumbs and toes, and then he lived in Jerusalem until he died. They were not following orders. They should have just eliminated him. This is why I'm pro-death penalty, because sick people need to die. Oh, gosh, please don't take that out of context. But very sick people. And in Romans 13, I believe, it says the government does not bear the sword in vain. The representation of the sword means that the government has the right to execute people. And quite frankly, there are far too many proud child molesters in prison who need to be executed who are soaking up taxpayer dollars. <sighs> okay, calm down, Meg. Calm down. As you can see, I feel very passionately about this. So does God. So does God. There's a reason he told them to wipe out the Canaanites, because they adopted all of that wickedness. And while I'm on it, Judges 19 is the classic example of the abusive boyfriend. Go read it for yourself. Also, I think I need to look up Ruben Ramsaran's sermon on that, because it was the bravest sermon I ever heard in my life, and I want to listen to it again, because it was... That that was brave preaching right there. Some 
oh gosh, I can think of very few sermons that I've heard over the years, remember specifics from them, but that sermon burned in my brain. And yet, with all of this, but yet a tenth will be in it and will return and be for consuming. I'm not sure what that means. So the word consuming there. So I'm going to go over to New Living Translation because I need, okay, Isaiah, do, 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 because I need some fresher language to help me understand this. I like to read to you guys in the New King James because it's the most literal translation, but I also like to read for myself in the English Standard Version or the New Living because it just, it helps me with understanding it for myself, if that makes sense. Uh, Let's see, this is verse 13. If even a tenth, a remnant survive, it will be invaded again and burned. Oh, gosh. Okay, well, that's basically God is saying God's going to annihilate everything. But, uh, this is New Living, but as a terebinth or oak tree leaves a stump when it's cut down, so Israel's stump will be a holy seed. There is a really amazing thing about the terebinth and the oak in the Middle East. And from my notes via the Reformation Study Bible, it says the Middle Eastern terebinth and oak trees can produce new shoots even when they appear to have been cut or damaged beyond all hope. God is so good about reviving the hearts of those who truly love him. So if like that mustard seed that I referenced before, you have a mustard seed of faith, God can still grow you into a tree. If you feel like you have been absolutely annihilated by God's justice, beyond all hope, I'm telling you that there is still hope for you, and it's right here in Isaiah 6. God revives the hearts of men. He turns the heart of stone to a heart of flesh, and that That just astounds me. I'm so thankful for it. Yes, it's a slow process. He does that for our own sake, but he's so faithful. He is so, so faithful. (sighs) So don't ignore him. All of this, this, this entire, this entire study is, is basically to say, don't ignore the Holy Spirit because those who have will be given more. But even those who do not have, what they have will be taken away from him. My name is Meg, and I love my Jesus. And I believe in living inside out. Now it is your turn. Go and live it.